another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you don't know by now, my name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host today. Since the launch of the podcast, I've been asked the same thing. Why do you do this? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a discussion. Today, we often find ourselves becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again with no notes, no questions. I sit down with subjects to learn from them about them. Today, we continue our special series of episodes with the Green Party of Canada leadership candidates. And today we have David Murner on the show. David and I talk about his background, his view on how the Green Party of Canada can connect with all Canadians. David and I also talk about policy issues, including, but not limited to, rural communities. So sit back and enjoy cross-border interviews featuring David Murner. David, uh, let's jump right into this. Thank you very much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Um, usually I kick off all my interviews with the same question, so I'm going to ask you, where does your sense of duty come from? I love that question. It's the first time I've been asked that um, because my whole life I've worked as a public servant, and, um, uh, and that was one of the best things about being a public servant in the federal government and in provincial government was a sense that you were serving the public and that you were doing your duty to Canadians and that you were working on a higher cause, which was service to Canadians. So it's a great question. Um, Part of it comes from my parents. Um, My dad was a public servant as well. Uh, He was in Canada's foreign service. So we traveled around the country, uh, sorry, traveled around the planet to different countries every three or four years. And, um, when you live outside Canada as a kid, at least I got this really inspiring view of how great Canada was, right? And a sense that we're so lucky, um, especially compared to some of the countries we lived in. And so a sense that um, being uh, serving Canadians was a special thing. Like a lot of young kids, especially young boys in Canada, want to be in the NHL. <laughs> so I, I wanted to be a public servant. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, politics is part of that. Politics is a big part of it. it. One of the reasons I love politics, and I've always loved politics since my university days, is it's a chance to work on larger causes for Canadians. And that's where it comes from, is uh, my youth. Was it always in your mind that you were going to be a public servant and not in front of the camera, sort of doing the uh, election speeches, the political speeches? Or was it always, I'm going to be a public servant because that's where my family right. traditionally has laid? Yeah, I think um, I've always been really intrigued by hockey, you know, by, by, sorry, by public service and by politics, like hockey. Like I thought, you know, I could play in the NHL. So that was my original um, life plan. <laughs> Turned out that by the time I was 14 or 15, I realized I'm never going to make the NHL. <laughs> but, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> but I could also see, well, you know, maybe going into law and serving Indigenous people would be a really good career because that's another service. Indigenous people in Canadian history have been subject to so much injustice. And I thought, well, maybe I could, you know, litigate in the courts, fight in the courts to right the wrongs of Canadian history. And that was another way of giving back uh, and addressing a tragedy in Canadian history. Um, so I wasn't sure as a young person when I went into law, that was a big motivation for me was maybe I'll be an Aboriginal 
uh, fighting for Aboriginal rights under our constitution, fighting for Indigenous people across Canada. One thing led to another, and I went to the Department of Justice and worked on constitutional reform, which is the same kind of thing. Let's pull our country together. Let's unite. Let's figure out how we can solve these problems between, you know, Canada and Quebec. Um, how can we solve these language tensions and how can we entrench in our Charter of Rights, you know, Indigenous justice and Indigenous government? So I feel very fortunate to have been able to basically do my duty as a serving the public. And, and you left a successful career in the public sector to go to, in the private sector in government to go into politics in 2015. Was that a hard decision for you or was it time for you at that time to say, you know what, it's time to step up and actually get involved in the actual policy making behind the scenes or in front of the scenes? Yeah, it really was time. Um, I'd worked for 28 years in the public service. In my last 10 years, I said to myself, I'm not going to waste my career. I'm going to create deep transformational change in the justice system. Even though there are lots of senior judges and senior lawyers and even my own bosses who weren't really enthusiastic about it, uh, who were quite nervous about it, I really felt our justice system is unjust in many ways, especially to Indigenous people, poor people, people of color. Uh, it, and it really serves lawyers and judges well, but it does not serve Canadians well. It's so expensive. Anybody who's been through a divorce or has got a will probated, they'll know how complicated, how slow, how expensive our system is. It's not service-oriented. So long story short, I spent the last 10 years of my career really fighting for deep change, and that creates a lot of backlash and <laughs> a lot of tension in the system. Uh, so it was time for me to leave, uh, and I, I, I don't regret at all. Uh, we made huge progress. Anybody who's listening can Google Civil Resolution Tribunal which has really transformed the civil litigation part, you know, litigation over motor vehicle accidents and, you know, condominium disputes and small claims. It's, it's totally online. It's the only part of the justice system in BC that's fully functional throughout COVID-19. So I'm very proud of that battle. But when you're in a battle, it leaves scars on your, your own back and on the backs of other people around you. And so it was time for me to leave. So in 2015, you decide to run for the federal Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau. Um, uh, to, and my my listeners know this already. I was a candidate in that election as well in the 2015 election in uh, Northern Alberta. So uh, we ran under the same party leadership. But yeah. like you, I've left that party since. I am political homeless now. But um, you left the Liberal Party in a in a surprising move, because not a surprising move, but in a, in a announcement that Justin Trudeau made about two years into his term saying he was going to purchase the Keystone XL pipeline. The reason I bring this up is A, to talk about that, but B, there was an announcement today from the energy minister in Alberta, and we'll talk about that in a few seconds. But David, was that a hard decision for you to leave the party because you had put your name on the ballot for them and then... Yeah. Trudeau had done and bought something that you disagreed with. Um, yes and no. Uh, like <laughs> my career in the public service, it was time to leave. But 
It is also hard because, you know, I'd worked in the party ever since I was a master's student at University of Alberta. I did a master's in political science, and that was my first campaign in 84. And I was in the, you know, the Green Party was just forming at that time, almost didn't exist. And when I was a liberal in Alberta, you really had to believe in liberalism, right? Because, you know, I can remember that campaign. People were furious. It was after the National Energy Program. They felt that you know, Pierre Trudeau had really targeted Alberta. I, I believed in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I believed in Indigenous justice. And I was a fan of a lot of the stuff that uh, the Liberals had done to patriot the Constitution, for example. But it was, you know, uh, and I was on the national board of the party. As you said, I ran. I really was at the heart of the Liberal Party. And it's kind of weird to leave when they're in the majority. They're in power. Your friends are, you know, getting jobs and all that stuff. But... I was so disappointed by the broken promises. Um, I've been a fan of proportional representation ever since my U of A days, and uh, they broke that promise within the first year. Remember, the 2015 will be the last first past the post election. You probably said that in your campaign. I did. Yeah. Uh, I was broken within the first year. And then they adopted Stephen Harper's greenhouse gas reduction targets after criticizing them for years. The 2015 campaign, the Liberals said, we'll cut fossil fuel subsidies, corporate welfare, we call it, uh, to zero. And then you look last year, Canada set the record. We were the G7 country with the biggest corporate welfare program for the fossil fuel companies. So we did basically, the Liberals did the exact opposite. And so I was looking at this as a Liberal and saying, it's time to leave. And the day they bought the Kinder Morgan pipeline was the day I said, this is the final straw. I'm out of here. I'd already spoken to Elizabeth about helping her out and saying that I was going to leave. I left and I don't regret it for a minute. It's been fantastic in the Green Party. The Green Party is highly educated. Uh, you know, we have all sorts of people, you know, PhDs, master's degrees, uh, plumbers, uh, painters, electricians. We have a fantastic diverse group and I love it. Uh, Elizabeth May is an inspiring leader. And so I don't regret it for a minute. And in I fact, do apologize. In fact, Chris, if you're oh, homeless, we should, Chris, if you're homeless politically, we should talk some more offline. I'm just kidding uh, you. <laughs> um, my, um, uh, the biggest thing before I get into what the energy minister said in Alberta today, to go from the liberals to the green seems like a stretch. Some would say you'd go green NDP and then uh, uh, liberals, NDP, and then Green because you would move further to the left. Why go right to the Green? You say you were talking to Elizabeth May. What was it about the Greens that attracted you so much? Was it the environmental policies or was it the, was there another underlying issue? There is, and this relates to my career as a public servant working on deep transformational change, is the, the thing that the NDP and the Liberals and the Conservatives all have in common is that they're small change parties. They, they only fight for very small steps. But the science is increasingly clear. We have six, seven, maybe eight years before we are facing irreversible climate change. And that means a real threat to human civilization. It means mass species extinction. And I don't want to be negative. It's just what the scientists are saying. And I didn't believe the NDP. I think they found green values very late because it was politically convenient. Uh, and you can see here in, in British Columbia, where I'm from, the, the NDP have been pouring money into the liquid natural gas area. You know, the pipe, pipeline unions have a big impact on public policy here in BC. And look at Rachel Notley. She's a pipeline builder, really fighting for, um, you know, cutting royalties. And it was just, you look at the NDP record, they say one thing, 
before elections and do the opposite in government, just like the liberals did under Trudeau. And well, so, I was going to say, isn't the running joke in the liberals? They run to the they run to the right and they govern to the left. Yeah, and this time, you know, they ran on environment and they did exactly the opposite. They bought pipelines, poured billions and billions of dollars into twinning that thing, and then you know, uh, the fossil fuel subsidies, the corporate welfare is unbelievable, uh, and I think it's a total waste of taxpayer money. That's the other thing I really like about the Greens. People don't know this, but we are really serious about sustainable budgeting, making sure that we have costed every single one of our promises out. We went to the parliamentary budget office in Ottawa, an independent officer of parliament said, here's our budget. Here's our expenditures. Here's our revenues. Here's where they balance in five years. And we got two gold stars out of three. And if I'm the leader of the party, we're going to get three out of three on responsible budgeting. And I don't see that in the NDP either. I don't see that responsibility to sustainable budgeting. Sustainability is a core value for the Greens. People think, well, that's all about the environment. No, it's not. It's more than that. It's about how we design our policy and how we design our budgets. And we're really serious about not wasting taxpayer money. The, ori the origin of the Green Party was around cutting waste and, uh, and, and making sure that we were really careful on our, how we use our energy and how we use taxpayer money. And that really attracted me to the Greens as well, because I was one of those liberals who was saying we need to pay attention to how we budget. Well, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the Green Party was formed out of disgruntled PCers, wasn't it? Yeah. But people forget this. Like uh, in 72, the progressive conservatives campaigned on a guaranteed livable income, which is, <laughs> you know, has been a part of the Green Party platform since it was formed. And uh, especially now in these COVID-19 times, guaranteed livable income looks like it makes way more sense. And all these benefits, Justin Trudeau is walking out to the microphone every morning with a new benefit for some group, right? If you had a guaranteed livable income across the board, it would be much more fair and much simpler to administer, much less bureaucracy. If we had a single guaranteed livable income program for all Canadians and it was run in an efficient way. So there are a lot of progressive conservatives in our riding. There are a lot of liberals coming over right now. Uh, there's a flood of liberals coming into the Greens right now. And uh, all we need to do is bring guys like you in, Chris, and uh, we'll be rolling. <laughs> <laughs> We'll I'm chat. <laughs> so the question, the um, the environment, the energy minister for Alberta came out today and said that I'm not sure if you heard this uh, news article in the National Post and said that this is the perfect time to uh, build pipelines because the protesters have to stay at home. As you can imagine, pissed off a lot of people, pardon my French, but I, I just want to get your reaction on that of a minister of energy for Alberta saying, you know what, let's ram this through or let's start the process so that way the protesters have to stay at home. Well, it's really interesting to see how the Alberta ministers and, and Premier Kenny have been communicating and how they've set up this, what is it, a $30 million office sort of to... Two million now. They had to reduce... Two, they, did a, they did a big cut because of COVID-19, finally. So they're spending now $2 million basically on a propaganda unit, and it's shocking. It's really... You know, I, I'm actually surprised that a conservative government would waste taxpayer money in this way. Um, and one of the things I think politicians need to do, especially in this COVID-19 time, and it's true for Greens and everybody, is really be careful about our rhetoric. We should be looking at how we unite 
not how we divide. And we see so much of that. It's easy to divide. Look at Trump south of the border and it works. People get, you know, he gets headlines and people pay attention. And same thing with this announcement today. But that's not the kind of politics we should have in Canada. It should be about how do we pull together? We all know what the science says uh, and let's work together. And that's one of the reasons, especially in Alberta. I have a lot of family in Alberta. Like I said, I was born there. I went to U of A. I have my daughters a doctor in Calgary, first year doctor, um, lots of cousins. So how do we speak to Albertans as a Green Party in a way that's credible and true to Albertans and not in a way that's scary and says the sky is falling? Uh, how, do we, how do we explain? We have a real plan to move off fossil fuels over time, to move into renewables, and there are lots of jobs in renewables. Solar is the biggest growing area of employment in all of the energy sector globally and in Alberta. It's amazing. Um, and we know it's not us, it's not the Green Party that's saying, take your money out of the oil sands. It's the Koch brothers, it's all the big investors. Norway just decided to disinvest from the oil sands. So the private sector and the big investors are getting out. So we know this is a serious problem. It's not the greens and the tree huggers that are gonna make it happen. It's the investors who are getting out of the business right now. So what's our plan? And I believe the greens actually have the best plan for transitioning. So my cousin, you know, in Wetaskiwin can figure out, all right, how do I get into the geothermal business? And Hinton is leading the way in Canada in terms of geothermal and orphan wells. How do I get into the solar business? You know, look at the town of Raymond, Alberta. They've gone all solar, right, with their municipal infrastructure. And, you know, um, Alberta in many ways, the entrepreneurial spirit in Alberta is showing the way for the country and the world. So I say let's build on that. And it's, it's not a fake story. It's a true story. This is happening on the ground. And the Greens have a game plan to make it happen. So the biggest issue with the Greens in Alberta, and if you talk to any Albertan, and not any Albertan, but the majority of Albertans, because let's be honest, the majority are not Greens right now, they will say, they will say the Greens are about one thing, shutting down the oil sands. It's a PR game politics. How do you persuade people who have a mindset to say, if I vote the Green Party, I'm voting against what makes my, put food, food on my table? Yeah. So we need to reframe that. And I've heard this, like I've door knocked to the Greens. I ran in 2019. We had a great campaign here in BC, you know, came second in our riding. Next time we're going to win this riding is Boymore Center Soup. But it's true. People see us as you know, tree huggers, people who don't get the economy, you know, tax and spend. Or you, I've heard all the different things. And what we need to do is say there's new leadership in the Green Party. Somebody who actually was born in Alberta, understands Alberta, and really understands the importance of a transition where we don't leave people behind. That transition is coming whether the Greens are in government or not. So who has the best plan to make that transition happen in a fair, painless way where we don't leave people behind? And we have a great just transition policy. We have a great plan for investing in solar, geothermal, you know, wind, um, and also we're the only camp party that's ever campaigned on guaranteed livable income so that nobody falls below a certain safety net and also free tuition for trade school, college, and university. So I can say to my cousin, the expert welder, you know what, we can send you to Nate or SAIT and you can go there and figure out how to become an expert welder on geothermal or on solar or on wind. Uh, and we have a pathway forward that none of the other parties are talking about. And they should be talking about it, not just because of disinvestment, which is happening really quickly, but also because of the nature of our economy changing with artificial intelligence and machine learning and robotics. 
thousands and thousands of jobs are going to be lost just because of that. It's happened already, especially in the States. You see large parts of the States hollowing out. So we need a highly educated workforce. And we're the only party that's been campaigning on a much better education system, free tuition uh, that helps people transition to the new economy. I mean, taxi drivers, truck drivers, even lawyers. Like my last 10 years in, in the justice system was about onlining services. We didn't need as many judges and lawyers because we were doing things by phone, much more efficiently by video conferencing and by online dispute resolution systems. And I'd say to Albertans again, University of Alberta is one of the leaders in artificial intelligence. You probably remember they were the guys who figured out how to beat the uh, poker experts, right, with their artificial intelligence work. Most Albertans are, know about that story. That's a very difficult thing to do, and they did it. And so Alberta is already a leader in this field. Let's build on that talent and that expertise and shift before we're left behind as a provincial economy and also as a national economy. Okay, that's great. All said and done. But you have the parliamentary leader of the Green Party, Elizabeth May, come out and say, oil is dead. I can tell you that Albertans were not happy with that statement. Hmm. So while you're trying to change the PR around the Green Party, and we'll talk about why you got in here in a few seconds, but when you have a leader come out and say that, it it drives people away from you. So is it going to be harder for the Green Party under any leadership, but let's talk about your leadership, to bring people to that understanding that, you know what, we are moving that way already. We need to get ready for it. And no matter how we do it, we have to help you along as a government. Yeah, I I totally get why Albertans would be annoyed by that and why, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation today, why environmentalists and progressive people would be annoyed at the minister minister's comments today, you know, about, you know, the, those tree huggers can't get together during COVID-19. So we need to change the rhetoric. I mentioned this earlier. We really need to change our rhetoric. Let's build a rhetoric of unity, of pulling together as a country. You know, Albertans are at the heart of our country, you know, have paid into the equalization system for uh, two generations, three generations now. So let's recognize that. And, you know, to say oil is dead now is, is uh, really inflammatory. I think it's true that people are disinvesting and, you know, the price of oil has collapsed and, you know, we had negative oil prices uh, just a month ago. So, but we don't talk, we shouldn't talk that way. We should talk about what's the future we want to build together and who has the best plan. And what does the best science say? And what do the best economists say? And, and let's, you know, cut the ideology and the rhetoric and work together. That's what I'm running on in this campaign is a leader who can pull people together inside the party because we have a lot of diversity in our party. Like you said, we have a lot of progressive conservatives who found their home here. A lot of liberals like me have come over. Uh, and then we have at the other end of the scale, you know, a lot of people who are campaigning on eco-socialism and other things. Totally respect these points of view, but we need to unite. And it's true of our party and it's true of our country so let's talk about that then you you sort of like are reading my mind of where i'm taking this interview right now david (laughs) so thank you um 2019 election happened you ran you were defeated uh elizabeth may decides to step down in that election after that election not surprising to many people but it was a shock to some people um you decide to put your name forward why We need a uniter, like I've been saying on this call. We need somebody who can pull people together, somebody who's not coming at this 
job as sort of an ideological game where I'm preaching some ideology, some ism, right? Um, who's not coming at this as um, some sort of interest group saying we need a certain type of interest group as leader, somebody who pulls everybody together and says, you know, we need to build, we need good public policy. You know, our constitution says Canada is founded on peace, order, and good government. And so we need good government. Uh, and that means smart policy. And I'm a sincere believer. I'll tell you a story. In 2015, you would relate to this. My campaign manager said, you're a liberal, David. Stop agreeing with everything the Green candidate says. Because <laughs> the Greens were ahead of the liberals on, you know, legalization of marijuana and other, other drugs, uh, very, very progressive, guaranteed livable income. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if the liberals actually care, campaign in the next election on guaranteed livable income. They'll finally get there. So, and I've been a fighter for proportional representation my whole life since university. So, um, I actually think there are lots of common grounds and I'm inviting all liberals to come over and team up with the progressive conservatives, the, the red Tories who have no home in a Stephen Harper conservative party or an Aaron O'Toole uh, uh, conservative party. Uh, it looks like Stephen Harper's backing Aaron O'Toole, so he'll likely win the leadership of the conservatives. So all you red Tories and, and who are listening in on this call, come on over because the Greens really are uniting. And that's what I offer is the ability to unite people from different parts of the party. And I really hope to run a unifying campaign in the next federal election under the, the Green banner where we're just speaking truth to power. Greens are different, right? Like we've never held power. We've always stuck to our principles. We're not typical politicians, uh, and I think that's going to stand us in really good stead in the next election. And, and that's a great transition into this question is the Greens traditionally do well extremely early on in an election. With, let's take the 2019 election. Polls had you guys at 10, potentially 15, 20 seats at one point in time. I know any politician will tell them polls are polls and you should only trust the poll on election day. But by the time election day rolls around, green voters who want to vote green strategically start voting for somebody else because they want to stop another party. Yeah. I agree that we need proportional representation or getting away from first past the post. I, I am for that. I, that's why I ran as a liberal. Um, how do how does how does the leadership of David make sure you keep those green supporters in your party the entire election and not just at the beginning? Yeah, fantastic question because happened here in my own riding. Like up until about ten days or two weeks before the election, we were really riding high in the polls. We we thought we were on track to win, and then the NDP brought in this really nasty negative campaign. A CTV Truth Tracker called it grossly misleading, and it was grossly misleading. Uh, and they turned things around and uh, pulled it out here. We'll win next time, but that was a painful experience and. Part of it is about how we message. We need a consistent message. You know, we were talking about abortion and separatists running for us in Quebec and, and racists coming over to us from the NDP in, in New Brunswick, all sorts of distractions. We need to focus on a positive message of hope. Like um, Obama said, we need to put hope first about fear. Jack Layton said the same thing, actually. Um, and we need to follow that model. We also need better organization. Um, you know, the Greens are not organized on the ground, uh, and we're not organized in our messaging and in our door knocking and in basic political activities. The Liberals and Conservatives can afford to buy a lot of this talent, pay campaign managers and pay door knockers. The NDP do it too, through a lot through their union support. But we need, we have fantastic volunteers. 
but we need to be better organized with our volunteers. 338 ridings, all of them running full steam ahead. And then we'll go from 1.1 million votes to three to five and we'll become more credible. And people won't say in the last 10 days, well, this aren't, these guys aren't really credible. You know, they have maybe one or two seats they can win. We want to build. Um, and that starts right away on day one in the election after my election as leader. I'm going to hit the road, uh, talk to the media, talk to you again if you want, Chris, and really get our message out there across Canada, but also on doorsteps. Like I'm planning to drive across Canada in an EV, going from riding to riding and building from the base up, because who knows, we could have an election next year in this minority government. Um, what's what's your uh, opinion or what's your outlook on uh, getting candidate quotas, making sure 50% are women, making sure 50% or 10% are LGBT, minorities. What's your opinion? Because the reason I ask is parties will come out during an election, say we have 30% women running for us. We have 40% men running for us. But if you look at the ridings that the minority groups are in, they're not in traditionally strong ridings that the the parties will win. So under a leadership of David, Murner, would you agree that quota is great, but making sure you have that strong base, like you said, in place, so all candidates are viable in all ridings, 338 ridings? Yeah, I'm a big believer that the candidate should really reflect the riding. So, um, and the decision-making in the Green Party is really grassroots. Like, we are very tough in terms of the grassroots decide who the candidates are. It's not the leader handpicking somebody and parachuting them in and saying, here's your candidate, enjoy. That, that's what happens in the Liberal Party. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and we do not want that to happen in the Green Party, right? It's one of the reasons I left the Liberals, a very top-down, undemocratic organization. So, I believe in the participatory democracy values, but... We have to make sure our candidates reflect the writing and our candidate pool, the 338 candidates, are really representative of the full diversity of our country. We're a very diverse country and it's the leader's job to make sure that happens. I'd be happy to elaborate if you want on that um, in terms of how you do it. How do we, how do you attract those people? How do you attract those candidates? Because that's the big thing that every party has a challenge right at the election time because For some reason, in a majority government, everyone's surprised when an election is called. In a minority government, understandable, you never know when a government's going to fall. But in the last election, you saw parties still with like 200 candidates to fill the day the election was called. So how do you attract those candidates and recruit the candidates to potentially build up that volunteer base, to build up your party membership, but also get the local candidates because most people want to vote for a local candidate that's right totally agree i have three rules of politics and this works in the writing campaign or national campaigns start first work hardest and work smartest and that's why i say the day after i'm elected as leader talk to the media i might even be two days if we're lucky and (laughs) and then get on the road and really beat the bushes. You know, I'm here in Victoria on the West Coast, and I'll drive, you know, Prince George, Edmonton, Calgary, Regina, Saskatoon, and then all the way across the country through the Atlantic uh, provinces, um, and recruit candidates who are representative of their riding, talk to people on the ground, all our organizers, mobilize volunteers, get them excited, you know, and it is about personal leadership. 
The other thing that the data shows, if there's a person in a leadership position locally who is, say, a woman inviting a woman to run or a person of color and an indigenous person inviting a person of color or an indigenous person to run, you're much more likely to get them in. The other thing is you have to ask and ask and ask again. Uh, white guys like you and me will say yes on the second time, <laughs> but uh, people of color and, and women, the data shows they need to be asked more often. They need to think it through. And that's why it's so important to start early and give them a chance to really think it through and then build their team around, them, bring in their family, bring in their neighbors, bring in their, their uh, uh, professional associates and friends and so on. We need to start early. And if we don't create a, team of candidates that's representative of Canada, then I failed personally in not delivering on this diversity mandate because we really do need to reflect Canadian, the Canadian population and especially young people in our party feel they're not included in Canadian politics and they want a place. Uh, and it's true of many other groups in, 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 our, in our party and in our country. Now, this is my favorite part of the conversation, policy. Yeah. Who doesn't love a good policy conversation from time to time? Thank you. At least one person in my conversations <laughs> does. Um, let's start with agri um, rural communities versus urban cities. Um, green parties will traditionally, I'm assuming, let's, let, let's start off this way. Actually, let's stop here. Let's start off this way. I'm assuming you're in favor of a carbon tax. Yeah, I am. Do you think that this current government is doing enough for charging the carbon tax? Because scientists will say we need a $200 carbon tax to potentially reduce our greenhouse gases. Yeah. Are you in favor of the current model or something different? So I said I'm in favor of the carbon tax, but I should be really clear. I like the idea of, you call it a carbon tax or carbon fee, where we really measure carbon emissions and charge a fee for it. But I'm also a real fan of giving back to to Canadians so they can say, see it coming back to them. And it should be done in a fair way. So especially in northern communities, northern Alberta, northern BC, um, they don't have the same kind of public transit. They don't have the same kind of social supports. And so they shouldn't be paying a disproportionate part of this. You know, the dividend flowing back from these fees into the, the pocketbooks of Canadians and into municipalities, I think municipalities should be benefiting from this too, uh, should be um, fair. And we need to be really conscious of tax fairness because more and more Canadians feel, you know, the rich aren't paying their fair share of taxes, the richest Canadians. Um, and also polluters aren't paying their fair share. And Alberta is a perfect example with all these orphan wells. Alberta taxpayers are going to be paying huge amounts. Uh, after all the fossil fuel companies, you know, declare bankruptcy and leave, it's going to be Alberta taxpayers who are paying for that pollution. And that should not be the way. Polluters should pay. And when you and I drive a car that's uh, not an electric vehicle, we're really polluting, so we should pay. But I think it should be consistent. The Liberals, of course, give huge breaks to the industrial emitters, so they're not paying their fair share. And that really frosts Canadians. So let's address it. Let's really address tax fairness. And the Greens are really conscious that, you know, if you say carbon tax, Canadians will be up in arms. But if you say a fair polluter pay policy plus dividends back uh, to Canadians. That makes it more credible. And we need to put the numbers out there and how it would work and say, we're not just a tax and spend party. We're actually very fiscally responsible. We care about taxpayer money and conservation is the first step. Um, and let's work together on that program. 
But for the uh, listener who's listening in Thunder Bay, or Thunder Bay, Ontario, Slave Lake, Alberta, uh, Tum- uh, Tumblr Ridge, BC, the smaller communities, the residents of smaller communities, always are disproportionately affected by a carbon levy, carbon tax, or however you want to pronounce it, yeah. say it, uh, because they have to drive three, four hours, five hours sometimes to a major city yeah. to get food, shopping, um, healthcare. So when you when the Green Party is out there talking to rural communities. Policy-wise, they're, they're stopping right at that one. If yeah. you're saying you're going to charge me more to get my food delivered to me in my rural community, they're not yeah. going to want to talk to you. So it's great that you're talking about incentives, but how do you get people to say, yes, there's going to be incentives, but at first you're going to have to pay a little bit more for everything? Yeah. Well, I think that's that's a very fair point, and it's you know, one of the points I made earlier. People need to have a fair a sense of fairness. They, they need to be very confident that we've figured out these inequalities in Canada and how rural communities, especially northern communities, um, and even you know, in the territories as well, when you look nationally, are really play, paying a disproportionate amount for fuel and for transportation. And so we need a formula that works fairly for those folks too. One idea I heard recently is, look, instead of giving a dividend, instead of giving money back like a check, why don't we say we will commit to providing you with the support you need to put solar on your roof? Uh, and so, and in, in uh, northern communities, they're going to need more solar, uh, partly because of the way solar works. So we will pay for that, and you will get a disproportionate benefit. You know, if you're in Prince George or Fort St. John, BC, or you know, um, uh, any of these northern communities, we will help you uh, because we know you're paying a disproportionate part of the carbon tax. So you get bigger benefits in terms of helping with the shift to renewables right? To wind and solar. And we will invest our money there disproportionately for you. So you're not punished just by the, by, by the fact that you live in the Northern community. Now, we need to work the details out and we need to be really convincing at a detailed level. Now, for someone who's observed politics for some odd 20 years now, <laughs> I can tell you that the Harper government came out with green initiatives. It was not a good seller. No one bought into it, so that's why they discontinued it. So why do you think you would be a better advocate and a better spokesperson for a green initiative to get people to start green, uh, making, your ener- making your house's energy efficient? You know, I think feelings are changing, and I actually give a lot of credit to our kids and those of us who have grandkids. I don't, but people have grandkids. I really think public opinion is changing on this. I play hockey with a bunch of guys from Calgary. They come to Victoria every January for a tournament here, and, you know, they used to give me a hard time, a really hard time, because they're all working in the fossil fuel industry in different ways, some of them in downtown offices in Calgary, other people out in the field in the fossil fuel industry. But over the past couple of years, I've noticed a real shift. I think people are saying, this is not sustainable. We can see the science. We also see the investment flows out of the oil sands and, you know, uh, out of Alberta. And this is private sector investment, not government investment is flowing out. And I think public opinion is changing and people are looking for solutions. And so when I talk to them about renewables, they know more about renewables than I do. They say, yes, 
that is viable. And that's where a lot of these companies are now investing, including the big fossil fuel companies, Shell and so on. So it's happening and it's happening inside the fossil fuel industry. They can see what's happening in the investment world. They can see how growth is skyrocketing in solar and employment opportunities are skyrocketing there. So I think the job is easier now. And I think people are looking for smart solutions that are delivered by credible people, not your typical politicians who say one thing and do another. And the Greens, everybody knows the Greens are not typical politicians. That used to be a problem for us, but I think more and more people are looking for something different. In the States, they turned to Donald Trump because he was sure different. And I hope that doesn't happen here in Canada. I hope people say, well, you know, these Greens seem to be credible. Uh, they seem to be speaking in a responsible way, in a way that unites Canadians not to bias them. And that's what I hope to do in this leadership, is bring that kind of credibility to the Green Party and campaign that way consistently. And sometimes it's hard because you get shots, you know, take it out, you, and then you want to react in the same way. Uh, but really forcing ourselves to live up to our values. One of our core values is nonviolence. So let's apply that in politics and let's really do politics differently. And I think that'll resonate with Canadians, including Albertans. When people talk about policy, they want, they want someone that they can have a coffee with, have a beer with. So when you're going to be crisscrossing this country as leader, potentially, how are you going to connect with all Canadians and not just the downtown Victoria, but how about the rural communities? How about downtown Regina? How about downtown Toronto, Winnipeg? How can you reach out to those communities? Because if they don't know you, which most of the candidates of the Green Party they don't know right now. Yeah. How are you going to change that right away? I mentioned earlier to you the idea of crossing the country in an electric vehicle, and I want to come back to that because I actually have a story. You'll get lots of leadership telling candidates telling you, you know, what their plans are, but ask them, have you ever done it? So here's what I did in January and February. I crossed the country uh, uh, to meet Greens and meet local people, and uh, I went to Regina and uh, met the, uh, went to a convention where they elected a new leader of the Green Party of Saskatchewan. And then the, pretty much the next day, we Sorry, had a quick, quick interjection. Is it not Victor Lau anymore? No, no, it's Naomi Hunter. She just got elected. I, okay. I saw, yeah. So I saw, uh, I saw Victor there, but uh, um, Nao, I, I was saying to Naomi, I'm going on to Winnipeg Max in this leadership tour. Um, and she said, well, I'll join you and see how you campaign. And so we were driving across Regina and then all the way out towards Winnipeg. And, you know, there were some wind farms out there. She knew all about the indigenous community that built those wind farms. And we were running, we were running low on gas. So we stopped in Moosonee, Moosonee, Saskatchewan. And after we filled up with gas, we drove down the main street. And we saw, oh, look, there's a, a local newspaper in Moosonee. And we went in and we said, this is the... Uh, recently elected, two days ago, uh, leader of the Green Party of Saskatchewan, would you like to do an interview? She was interviewed for an hour and a half uh, in, in, by the Moosabee newspaper and got you know a great coverage. And then we got back in the car, drove to Winnipeg, and we had two events that night. And that's how we need to campaign. We need to go from big town to small town to big town. We stopped in Brandon on that same trip, by the way. And... Um, met with the guy who is the president of our local riding association. And he told us about, from his point of view, what the Green Party needs to do to help rural rural Greens like him. And he says it's tough in Brandon, Manitoba, even to recruit a candidate. People are actually scared in some parts of the prairies because there's just, you know, very strong feelings about the decline of the fossil fuel industries. And 
people seem to think that the greens are the reason behind it, not world prices and not disinvestment and not all these global things that are happening. Uh, and so he, uh, when we talked to people in the coffee shop, that was a coffee shop in Brandon, uh, around the corner from his house. Uh, you learn a lot. Uh, he knew people in the coffee shop. We had a nice conversation with them. I'm a real fan of retail politics. I did it here in this riding when I was running in Esquimalt Center Soup. We started knocking on doors in December, knocked all the way through to October election day in 2019. People would say at the start, you know, what are you doing here? There's no election on. And we'd say, well, people always complain that politicians only show up at election time. We're here to listen. And so I'm a real fan of listening. If you go to my website, davidmerner.com, you'll see a listening section and, and ideas that people have given me during my listening campaign. That's what I'm calling this stage of the campaign. So I'm a fan of listening to people, going to small coffee shops, just listening. Politicians tend to talk too much. Uh, I love to talk too, so I have to restrain myself uh, and just sit and listen. And you, the things you hear are amazing. Now, I understand that the Green Party is very grassroots in their policy. They, at the convention, they uh, adopt all their policies and the Green leader has to uh, uh, go out and sell those policies. Um, are you in favor of that system as well to allow the grassroots to set policy that government will be going to try to implement in the future? Yes, I am. I think the leader leader of a party can help to shape policy and has an influence on the members and Elizabeth Mace certainly did during her 13 years as leader. Um, but I also believe that if you're in a real grassroots democracy party, then you have to listen to the members and they are the ones who have the power in setting party policy. It shouldn't be top down like it is in the Liberal Party. So yes, I'm a real fan of that. And I'm a fan of being a spokesperson that follows the will of the membership. Um, and on things like abortion, for example, we've been very clear. We are a pro-choice party, and every candidate who comes into uh, the, the party to run has to toe the party line where there's been a clear resolution of the membership, and there has been on pro-choice. On gun control, for example, we don't have a clear policy, and we allow diversity of opinions. Like, um, we had two MPs, Bruce Heyer and Elizabeth May, who voted, who green MPs in the House of Commons who voted different ways. Bruce is from Thunder Bay. He was listening to his constituents. He didn't agree with the liberal firearms policy, so he voted against it. Elizabeth May voted for it. She said, my constituents like it. It's right for Canada. I believe I should vote for it. That's fine. We allow diversity in the Green Party, unlike the other parties where there's ruthless whipping of the votes to make sure everybody toes the party line that the bosses in Ottawa set. And that is not the way of the Green Party. We are really a grassroots party. And if a leader ever said, well, I don't believe in grassroots democracy, that would be it. They'd be out uh, because it's a core belief. And like I said earlier, it's one of the reasons I left the Liberals. I was just tired of Trudeau and his team really setting policy for the party. Now you talk about diversity in your uh, in the Green Party, and you talk about how if a policy is passed, everyone has to agree to it. Does that not pigeonhole your party into just only agreeing to what the party policy is? And once a policy is passed, and potentially if you have four or five MPs who are elected who don't agree with that policy, would have to then go against their constituents' wishes to vote against what their constituents want case in point so if the green party tomorrow comes out and says you know what we're going to be in favor of uh, restricting uh, handguns and two of your mps say well my party i believe my constituents like the handguns if they're from rural alberta that's not a far stretch yeah so how do you how do you then balance that out 
Yeah, we have six core values in, in the Green Party and diversity is one of them and that includes diversity of opinion. It's not just diversity in terms of, you know, male, female, women of color, uh, women and men of color and so on. So um, diversity of opinion really has to be respected since it is a core value. But another principle is participatory democracy. So, so democracy. So we need to marry up these two slightly conflicting principles because if we're really serious about participatory democracy, then you listen to the membership and you don't freelance as a leader or as a candidate. So I say if it's been passed in convention that we will stand by this policy, then all candidates must stand by that policy. There might be an argument that when you get into parliament and people uh, have a debate, you can listen to the debate and so on, but um, we should not recruit candidates who are already saying right on day one, well, you know what, Um, I'm not pro-choice. I don't believe in a woman's right to choose, so I'm going to speak up in the media against it. Or um, I have, you know, uh, a belief that uh, uh, separatism is a good idea and I want to run for the party in Quebec. There are some core issues where we just can't allow diversity of opinion. They need to be clearly defined ahead of time, and we need to require our candidates coming in to respect the fact that we are a party that listens to the membership. There's two last areas that I want to talk about before I let you go here because we're running out of time here. Um, One uh, is, do you believe, and... uh, this, this comes back to your first uh, about 10-minute talk that we had. Do you believe that Canada has failed our Indigenous people? Yes, I do. Um, one of the things that drove me into law uh, as a young man was the sense that deep injustice has been done to Indigenous people throughout our history from day one, including the herding of Indigenous people onto reserves, a total colonial disgrace. So... Um, and you know what? My first job in law was actually in Hobima, Alberta. It's now called Masquachis, Alberta, working for a fantastic lawyer named Willie Littlechild. Uh, he was working on, you know, international human rights, lobbying the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations in Geneva. Amazing man. He became a conservative member of parliament and then a Truth and Reconciliation Commissioner. So it's really something that's near and dear to my heart. And it should be near and dear to the heart of all Canadians, because if we allow injustice to continue, we're going to pay a serious price for it. And we saw that with the Wet'suwet'en um, demonstrations. Uh, Canadians uh, need to pay attention to justice for Indigenous people. And we are not being fair to Indigenous people. We're ignoring their hereditary cheats. We're not negotiating uh, treaties at the rate we should be. And we will pay a price as a country because more and more people, not just Indigenous people, but young people across Canada um, are saying, we're not going to accept you know, uh, a government that doesn't treat Indigenous people with respect. We're not going to accept RCMP use of force on Indigenous women and children. Uh, and I think things have changed in terms of public opinion, not just uh, on fossil fuels in Alberta, where people are looking for alternatives, but also on Indigenous people. People can see we must do justice. There can't be any peace without justice. And so I see it as a core issue for our future for the next 10 years. 
You you touched on a subject that I want to I want to breach into because it's the top talk of the town in Alberta here: hereditary chiefs versus elected chiefs. From your standpoint, how does a government uh, negotiate with a First Nations or an Indigenous community when there's two chiefs potentially that are at the center of it? So you know what? This is really simple. People are surprised when I say this, but a first-year law student will be able to tell you what the law is on this. And the law is really clear. On reserve, elected chiefs under the Indian Act have jurisdiction. They are the decision-making authority. Off reserve, especially in parts of the country, like vast parts of BC, where there's no treaty, then the hereditary chiefs have the responsibility. The Supreme Court has ruled on it, and I mentioned the Wet'suwet'en conflict earlier, they have a specific case on that. I actually went down there as an articling student to the courthouse in Vancouver. I was articling in Vancouver and heard, you know, uh, some of the submissions on that. Um, it's clear. Supreme Court of Canada has said hereditary chiefs are the traditional governments. Off reserve, these are the people that must be consulted. And, um, it, and you know, it's astounding that the provincial government in BC and the federal government have not come to the table. I believe that Supreme Court decision was uh, issued in the early 90s, or maybe it was the mid-90s, and they still have not negotiated a treaty with the traditional chiefs, even though the Supreme Court was very clear on who has jurisdiction. And I think governments and many of the right-wing commentators are trying to confuse the issue. Just talk to a first-year law student. They'll explain it to you. It's very simple. On reserve, elected chiefs, off reserve in traditional territories, it's hereditary chiefs you negotiate with. That's simple. What would the Green Party of Canada government do first day one or the first hundred days in office to change the policy, change the attitude towards Indigenous communities? The Indigenous communities rightly say nothing about us without us. In other words, we need indigenous people to help us lead on this issue. We need to really listen. I mentioned earlier, I'm a real fan of listening. If you go to davidmerner.com, you'll see a listening part. And actually in the listening part of my website, you'll see a hundred day plan of what we Greens should do in the first hundred days. Generally, your question was about indigenous people. It's about building relationships and listening. What I'd love to see is that we work with indigenous people. Many of them say the Indian Act is a terrible instrument of oppression from the colonial era. The South African apartheid government modeled their whole government on Canada's reserve system. But there are other indigenous species, especially in Alberta, actually, and on the prairies, that say, no, the Indian Act is critical for us. We believe in it. We need a reserve system to protect our, our lands. And so we don't buy into eliminating this colonial piece of legislation. So what I'd love to do is work with them on, let's develop a menu of options and let's leave it up to indigenous governments to decide what menu parts they want to, to choose. So if you want to protect the land title and reserve system that's in the Indian Act, great. We're not saying we'll, we'll end that. But for especially in BC, people will say, no, we want to get into a completely new regime and let's work on what that looks like. This is going to require much better, much better faith negotiation by negotiators. But negotiators take mandates from political leaders. And that's one of the things that the Green Party would really focus on is what is the future? How do we get out from under the colonial 
Indian Act? And how do we get into a new world where we respect indigenous governments, including the hereditary chiefs, and uh, we move off this uh, cycle of dependency and this really ancient uh, colonial way of thinking about Indians on reserves? Now, my last set of questions is about the topic on everyone's mind right now, COVID-19. Right. Um, is the Canadian government doing enough to help Canadians through this pandemic? I know we talked earlier on in the uh, episode about how we need to move to a basic income for everyone. And instead of doling out money here or there for every single uh, group, to have just one universal basic income would be better. So that's great. But how do we get through this as a country, in your opinion, as the Green Party leadership? Well, if Trudeau had listened to us, which, of course, we're only three seats in the House of Commons, so it's tough to get him to listen to us. He has a, major- he has a, not a, he has a minority government. Um, if he had listened, we would have brought in a guaranteed livable income right at the start uh, because the Canada emergency um, benefit, emergency response benefit, really looks like a guaranteed livable income, except the way he's rolling it out, he walks out to the microphone every morning and announces a new program. And when you were a liberal and I was a liberal a long time ago, you can remember we were attacking the Harper government for rolling out these little you know, programs just to get a vote here and a vote there. Didn't make any sense. There was no united vision to this. And I can see the same thing happening right now. My daughter's home now from COVID-19. She's a university student. She's very grateful that there's now a part of the CERB for students. And renters have the same thing. Small business have the same thing. There's all these little things rolling out week to week. If we come in with a guaranteed livable income across the board, there would be no holes in the safety net that had to be repaired every morning by walking out to the microphone, right? So let's, let's really rethink how we manage our benefits. And this is why the Conservatives supported it in 1972, the progressive Conservatives, of course, is they said, this is a much more fair, uniform way of helping to ensure that all Canadians have a basic livable income. It's bureaucratically way more efficient. You don't need as many bureaucrats. It's much more fair to Canadians. And the bureaucrats that are administered are different. They're just administering a program. They're not like a police force checking, are you cheating and all that stuff. You know, it's much, much simpler one benefit, all Canadians, and it's, uh, it's, it's popular with progressive conservatives, with Greens, even in the Liberal Party, there are people who support it. So let's move to a much more fair and simple system. Guaranteed livable income has been tested in Finland, in Ontario, until Premier Ford cut the program. We know in Manitoba in the 40s, we know that this can work. Uh, And especially in COVID-19 times, it's a real education for us. The money's there. For basically 7% of our national budget, we eliminate poverty. And to me, that's a good deal. Let's eliminate poverty. You know, one in five uh, British Columbians, uh, uh, British Columbian kids is living in poverty, one in seven nationally. We should be taking on poverty. And for 7% of our national budget, it's a great deal to get those kids out of poverty. And, but the, the, the automatic first question that anyone would ask about a universal basic income, and I'm assuming you already know the question, how do you pay for it? 
You pay for it. Yeah, I, we, we actually had our program costed out. And like I said, it's 7% of the budget. Um, so it's not free. Uh, we have to figure out how to pay for it. And I actually believe that a lot of Canadians feel that the richest 1% in Canada is getting away by shifting their uh, uh, assets offshore, hiding them in offshore accounts. We know that there are Canadians in the Panama Papers showing how Canadians are hiding their assets in, in Panama. We're the only country in the world that hasn't prosecuted anybody listed in the Panama Papers. Uh, no Canadian listed there has been prosecuted. I was at the Department of Justice for years. I worked on litigation teams that went after big tobacco companies smuggling through Aquasasne and pharmaceutical companies hiding their profits in Switzerland and Bermuda. Uh, they need resources. Uh, they need people who can go after these these one percenters, basically, who aren't paying their fair share of taxes. We spoke earlier about making sure polluters pay, not taxpayers. You know, orphan wells are going to be on the backs of Albertans for years and years because the fossil fuel companies managed to escape doing what was right. Um, and the Alberta government failed for year after year to protect taxpayer interests. So taxpayers are annoyed, and rightly so. Let's have a system that's fair to all, that doesn't just benefit the rich and the fossil fuel companies, but it's fair for all Canadians. And I think we can get there. It takes good policy, and it especially takes good leadership. And uh, that's why people should vote green. Well, David, I feel like you and I could have like a three-hour conversation, but uh, for out of transparency, I'm just keeping everyone to an hour. But the last question I ask all the candidates, you have two minutes. Pitch yourself to my listeners. (laughs) That's great. I love that question. So what I say to your listeners, and most of them are in Alberta, right, is that... Uh, Alberta, I'll give you two minutes after this. Alberta, we are across Canada. Yeah. And for some strange reason, we just got a big listenership in Ireland, UK, and Australia. I love that. That's so (laughs) great. (laughs) That's great. So to the... To the Greens around the world, but here in Canada, what do you say? To the Greens around the world and here in Canada, and to all Canadians, what I say is we need deep change in how our government works in Canada and how our planet works, especially how our economy works globally. We cannot keep burning up fossil fuels in the way we are now. We need a deep transition off fossil fuels and onto renewables. Uh, And it's critical. And Alberta actually is leading the way. But there's examples all across the all across the Canada. Here in my riding, where I ran last time in the Squamal Centre suit, the South First Nation is entirely off diesel, diesel generators, and they're entirely onto solar. And it rains quite a bit here in the southwest corner of our country. Uh, but they've done it. Not only that, but the people in the South First Nation are now going across the country helping other First Nations get off diesel generators. That's just a small example. And we talked about wind and solar and geothermal in Alberta. Across the country, people are realizing we need to make this change. And what we need is a movement, a movement of Canadians who are very concerned about the fate of their kids and their grandkids and seven generations down the road. What are we going to do to prevent this catastrophe that all the scientists say is coming in six, seven years? You know, irreversible climate change, uh, mass species extinction, which is underway already. And the Greens can't be negative. We can't be focusing on this is a disaster coming. But we do know from uh, COVID-19 that we are able to respond. We're able to come together. We're able to grow together. We're able to put taxpayer resources together to help each other out at the community level and nationally and internationally as well. And so what I'd like to say is let's build that movement together 
in Canada. I'd like to see Canada become a leader. We are a laggard, not a leader. We're way behind. We spend way more on corporate welfare uh, for the fossil fuel industry than any other G7 country per capita. It's a disgrace. And we have no credibility internationally if we continue down that path. So we need to change. And we need Canadians to unite behind a positive future, which is a, po a future powered by renewables, a future where no one is left behind, including people in the renewable energy sector. Sorry, including people in the fossil fuel sector who we need to move into renewables. The economy is going to change a lot anyway, no matter who governs with artificial intelligence and machine learning and robotics, it's going to change a lot. So let's get ahead of it. Let's build up our skills uh, through free tuition and let's pay for it by making sure people who are not paying their fair share of taxes do so. So that's the pitch. I think it's very practical. We have it all costed out. Uh, and, uh, and I just think it's time to make big change. And we know the NDP, the Liberals, certainly the Conservatives are not interested in big change. They're interested in small steps that uh, uh, placate their own interest groups. And it's too late for that. We need to move fast in a principled, thoughtful way not in the way of typical politicians. And one thing you can say about the Greens is we're not typical politicians. And I take that as a point of pride. That's my pitch. That's awesome, David. Um, so for my listeners who are here uh, listening still, uh, I will link David's uh, website in the show notes, but also a link to join the Green Party of Canada in the show notes as well. So just click on that, join the party. If you liked what you heard, get out and join the party and learn a little bit more, but also take time and look at all the candidates because that's what democracy is all about. Yeah. David, I want to take this time one last time. Thank you very much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's davidmerner.com and people should know the maximum they can donate is 1650 I'm sorry to tell them that, but uh, donations are very welcome. davidmerner.com. Thanks a lot, Chris. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. And once again, thank you to our guests for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview and I really hope you did too. This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week. <laughs>